Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Al Westerman. I'm the pastor here, and it's my privilege to be sharing with you again this morning. I've been on quite a long preaching journey, and it's, it's actually changed quite a bit over the years. It, it's even changing now, constantly in flux, but years ago I had a, a pretty bad strategy for preaching. However, being in university changed the way that I preach. Before I went to university, my aim was to prove a point that I wanted to make, and then I would try to uncover passages of scripture and stories to back up what I already believed. (laughs) I quickly learned in my university studies that that strategy wasn't going to work, especially when you consider the complicated nature of textbooks, scientific journals, and articles. It became too difficult to find things to prove the things that I wanted to prove, and, and that wasn't the only problem. I realized that I was trying to discover things to back up my original bias. I was deciding that I was the authority on the subject, and I was living as though there was nothing really to be learned. A few months into my studies, I decided to employ a different tact. I began to read resources around a specific topic, and then I would try to determine what it was that they were saying. When I began to look at the evidence, I would then build an opinion around that. And the change here is pretty significant. One of these approaches involves humility and curiosity, the other, arrogance and pride. And when I began to employ this new strategy, I began learning in a new way because I was opening my mind and not going in with presuppositions. I was able to absorb information and form opinions that I hadn't previously had. That way of information came to me that was contrary to what I previously believed. I was able to contrast that with an entire body of information. Opposing views are important. They can be used to inform and strengthen your own opinion or to grow your understanding. Sometimes we get to adopt parts of an opposing view, but sometimes that's not what's required. However, humility is required to be able to contrast like this. It's foolish to believe that we already have the understanding that we require in in total form, and it's also foolish to believe that there's nothing left to be learned. Now, this finds its way into preaching, of course. Again, before I went to university, I would find a direction that I wanted to go with a message, and then I would make a point that I wanted to to make as well, and I would try to find, I would actually just hope that I could find scriptures to back that up. Presently, I find a passage, I read it, I study it, and I also typically will try to find a direction that I'm hoping to go, but I'll read and study the passage and I'll ask questions like, what does this say about me? What is this pa- More importantly, what does this passage say about God? What does this passage tell us about the world? And then when I've done that, I'll take another look at the direction that I was hoping to go and I'll reevaluate it. Was I correct in my presupposition? So, great. Was I wrong? Great. Because I get to learn either way, and I get to try to be true to what the text is. Because really, what's my goal in all of this? My goal is to try to present the gospel as well as I possibly can, and to try to see how that lines up with our lives today. 
and I mean, this is true for all of us, right? We're, none of us have total and complete knowledge of everything. We're all learning constantly. And as children of God, we get to continually learn more about who God is, what he's about, and what the kingdom of God is about. We are in a series called Dinner with Jesus. Dinners with Jesus. And we're looking at them in the book of Luke. We have seen so far that Jesus is very different than we would have assumed. He spent time with people of bad reputation. He spent time with known sinners, drunkards, swindlers, and thieves. This angered and confused the religious people. But Jesus didn't come for the righteous. He didn't come for people that thought that they had no need for a doctor. He came for the sick. He came to be a savior for those in need of a savior. He came to be hope for those in need of hope. Paul talked about this two weeks ago, the story of Jesus being anointed by a sinful woman. Her reputation made her undesirable for the religious people to associate with her. But Jesus showed her compassion and kindness. Instead of holding her sins against her, he forgave her. He explained that in understanding forgiveness, she would come to a place of loving him more, out of gratitude. Jesus explained that regardless of how righteous you try to live, there is still always a debt of sin that we cannot repay. In understanding this, the proper and appropriate response is gratitude, overflowing gratitude, similar to that shown by the sinful woman how she expressed it. And what's interesting is that Simon had access to that same forgiveness, but he didn't choose to rejoice in it or to access it. And then last week, Brent talked about Mary and Martha, how Martha was concerned with a great many things that needed to be done. Yet Mary had chosen the best part. And what was the best part? The best part was making Jesus the object of her affection. It was sitting at his feet, it was wanting to be with him, to listen to him, to love him. And, and these things would never be taken from her. They also set her up to live with joy and peace in a way that Martha did not have. And today we're looking at Jesus having dinner with the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law. What will we find here? Will we find that they're humble and willing to learn? Or do they already know everything that they need to know? Are they preventing others from learning and coming into an understanding of the saving power of Jesus? Are their eyes open or are they willfully blinding themselves? Are they intentionally disregarding evidence and information because it doesn't align with their presuppositions, like what I used to do in university? Or are they willing to learn? Are they willing to be humble and to figure out if Jesus is the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy? Or is he a false prophet and a heretic? The difference here couldn't be greater. But will they allow the evidence to speak for itself? Let's pray. Father God, as we, as we talk about today, um, God, my prayer for all of us is that we too be open and humble. God, that we be willing to receive what you have for us. God, many of us have very solid beliefs in you, and many of these beliefs and presuppositions are, are correct because we, we grew up with good teaching. 
but God, all of us have areas where we're incorrect as well. And God, I pray that we can be humble and open to receiving from you who you truly are. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So if you have a Bible with you, please open it up to Luke. We're going to be in chapter 11, starting at verse 29. And if you have a pew Bible, that's page 844. So here's a Bible study tip for you. Uh, If you want to understand a passage better, read the whole chapter that it's in, the chapter before it, and the chapter after it. Because oftentimes, breadcrumbs and tidbits will be put into those verses that help illuminate the truth in the passage that you're reading. Now, I found that when I was researching the dinner Jesus has with the Pharisees, that the verses, the two stories before, illuminate truths in the dinner to such an extent that I have to start by explaining them. So my path of action here today is going to be to look at the two interactions that Jesus has before the dinner, that being the story when Jesus contrasts Jonah and the men of Nineveh to the story of the Queen of the South. And the second is Jesus talking about receiving light, how receiving light is is very important. And I think it's also very important that we understand these two stories before we actually get into the dinner that Jesus has with the Pharisees. So our story today takes place immediately after uh, Brent's sermon from last week of that of Mary and Martha. Now, amazing as it may seem, immediately after an incredible story on intimacy with Jesus, Jesus teaches on prayer. Isn't that neat? And then shortly after this, Jesus is confronted with a demon who he then casts from the person. Jesus is accused of being the prince of demons. And then Jesus goes on to teach proper beliefs and doctrine around the demonic. This, of course, draws a large crowd and concludes with Jesus receiving a very awkward compliment, which he redirects wisely. So that's in verse 27. As he was speaking, a woman in the crowd called out, God bless your mother, the womb to which you came and the breast that nursed you. Jesus replied, but even more blessed are all who hear the word of God and put it into practice. So here's where we pick up in the story. Verse 29. As the crowd increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. Wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with all the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus responds to the Jews asking for a sign earlier in the chapter. One thing we know about Jesus is that when someone asks him for a sign directly and purely for the purpose of entertainment or to try to put Jesus on trial or or try to prove himself, Jesus won't perform any signs or miracles. Those aren't the reasons that motivate him. He isn't one to be backed into a corner or to use a sign by way of defense. Jesus uses signs many times throughout the Gospels, and in every circumstance, it's for a good reason. There's heart behind it. Jesus heals people out of love. 
People come to Jesus who have loved ones who are sick or hurting, and he brings healing to them. Now, what these people aren't doing is they aren't looking for a sign to titillate their senses. No, they're much more interested in reconciliation and fullness. Jesus uses signs and wonders many times throughout the New Testament. However, in this case, it would appear that he might be against them because he says that it's a wicked generation that asks for a sign. Now, that's not the case. He's merely addressing the heart of the issue and, more importantly, the heart of the person. Jesus doesn't believe that signs should be used for entertainment value, but rather as a way for God to display his love. Jesus begins here to talk about Jonah. He mentions that Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites. In like form, Jesus will be assigned to this generation. Now, what's he talking about here? There's typically a connection made between Jonah being in the belly of a fish and Jesus being in the grave, both for three days. Actually, if you look at the parallel version in Matthew, Matthew 12, 40, that's even mentioned. But it might be more than that. If you look closely at the text, you might notice that Jesus doesn't necessarily compliment Jonah for what he does. He focuses on the sign that Jonah brought, that Jonah was to the Ninevites. And then he mentions in verse 32 about how the men of Nineveh uh, will stand... Ah, how the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. The preaching of Jonah brought about widespread repentance. The word preaching here could and probably should be translated word. It was the word of God. The word that God had given him. Thus, here we have the sign of Jonah given by God and the word of Jonah also given by God. And and what was the result of all this? 120,000 people gave their lives to God because of this word. This is remarkable. This is amazing. And I believe this is the largest account of conversion recorded anywhere in the Bible. So why do the men of Nineveh stand in judgment against this generation? It's because they repented. When it gets down to brass tacks, they chose to be humble. They chose not to continue to go on their own way, which led to destruction. Instead, they chose God's way. And even though this was an opportunity that was thrust upon them and not one that they necessarily chose for themselves, ultimately, the entire city of Nineveh voted with their actions to choose God and submit to his ways. They chose repentance and to put their hope in God. Next is the story of the Queen of the South, or the Queen of Sheba. And this is a literary tool used several times in the Bible. It's seen mostly in the book of Proverbs. And what the writer will do, and what the literary tool is, is that they will share two things, one to explain one extreme, and the other to explain the other extreme. For example, Proverbs 27.12 says, The prudent see danger and take refuge but the simple keep going and pay the penalty. In Proverbs 28, 14, it says, Blessed is the one who always trembles before God, but whoever hardens the heart falls into trouble. Now, looking at both sides of these Proverbs helps us understand the truth in them better. We also see this in the story of the Pearl of Great Value. Here, there are two stories. In one case, someone is wandering through a field and happens across a hidden treasure. In the other, there is a merchant who is searching everywhere for a pearl of great value and finally comes across it. And this is the very thing that we're talking about here. The men of Nineveh happen to come across vital and important information. 
by chance. Whereas the queen of the south is a humble searcher, eagerly seeking to find truth and wisdom. And as the story of the queen of the south was read earlier, I hope that you notice some interesting things. One of them was that the queen of the south traveled a great distance to come and see Solomon. She searched him out. She had heard a report about him, and she needed to see for herself. Now, what's interesting is that when she received the report, her response was actually incredulity, meaning that she literally did not believe the report that she had received. Okay, so don't miss this. Even though she had trouble believing the report about Solomon, she was intrigued enough to investigate the manner for herself. This shows remarkable humility and curiosity. And these are two traits that Jesus highly values. And we know this because he honors her by them thousands of years after her life. What was the result of the Queen of the South coming to investigate Solomon? What we read is that she was overwhelmed by his wisdom, magnificence, generosity, and even the faith of Solomon. This is made even more impressive that when you consider that she did not come as a believer, but as a curious critic. She was blown away by what she experienced and said that it didn't even portray up to half. It wasn't portrayed to her even up to half of what it actually was. The point here is that she investigated. She didn't just take someone else's opinion and decide to dismiss or receive the information, but she made it her mission to get to the bottom of the issue. Many people in Jesus' day came to him in various ways, as it is today. Perhaps some of them heard of his fame. Maybe some had seen a sign or a miracle. To others, perhaps a friend may have testified that Jesus changed their life. Maybe someone heard that he was a false prophet and they wanted to be sure. Maybe some people just happened to be there. And like the men of Nineveh, they had an opportunity thrust their way. Regardless of how they came to encounter Jesus, a choice had to be made. Was Jesus who he said he was? Today the question is, is Jesus who he says he is? Is he the son of God? Is he the only way to salvation in heaven? Are you sure? How do you know? Can you with humility come to him with curiosity and openness? Not thinking that you have it all together or that you know everything that needs to be known, but rather being open to learning about who Christ is and what the Bible has to say to us today. One of the things Jesus wants us to see before we sit down for dinner with him and the Pharisees is that it's important for us to come to him with humility, openness, and curiosity. It is also important to understand light and its opposite, willful blindness. Those options are opening yourself up to the light or closing yourself off to the vision and opportunities that come from the light in Christ. Uh, One of my favorite quotes on light comes from C.S. Lewis, where he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Regarding light, Jesus says in Luke 11.33, no one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. 
But when they are unhealthy, your body is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. Now, continuing right along with how we can address the truth of God with humility, it is important that people are able to receive the light of Christ in the same way. Each individual has the responsibility to receive the light. We are going to use the terms I and focus here interchangeably because that's what I believe Jesus is talking about. The eye is what you are focusing on. And Jesus says that the eye is a lamp. Now, what's interesting here is that lamps don't actually emit light. They need fuel or a source. The lamp, then, is a tool to host the light, provided it is a willing and capable vessel. Now, similar to that with the eye or our focus, when coupled with our willingness, it becomes capable of receiving light. Who would want to hide this light? What does it mean to hide the light? Hiding the light in this context means hiding the revelation of Jesus being the Christ, the anointed Savior of the world. The reason that some people live in darkness is that the light is being concealed. People intentionally, whether it's by bad motives or poor understanding, hide the light that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah of the world. When something is seriously wrong with your eye, your body And your eye cannot make proper use of the light, regardless of the brightness. And that's why Jesus says, when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But what if you choose to shut yourself off from the light of Christ, allowing the light within you to become darkness? You'll not be able to experience the joy nor the power of that light. If we do this, then we prevent the light of Christ from shining in our and transforming our lives from the inside out. When the light of Christ is within our hearts, our whole person becomes brightened. Our desires, our intellect, our feelings, and our will are influenced by the light of Christ. Did you know that there are different types of light? Some of them are good, but some of them are artificial and even harmful to you. There, are, there is a big difference between red light and blue light. And if you're awake late at night, you're receiving blue light, which is an artificial light, from computers, TV screens, cell phones. And this is actually harmful for your body, especially when it enters your light, uh, your eye. And it can disrupt your body's natural circadian rhythm. However, not all light is created equal. Red light does not disrupt your body's natural rhythms. So, for example, if you were to watch a fire late at night, it's actually good for you. It's soothing and will allow you to sleep properly. The difference is one of these comes from God and the other is artificial. It seems beneficial, but it's actually destructive. And this shows how light can actually become darkness. If your eye and your focus are on Jesus, you will be able to see what he's doing The light of Christ, when it illuminates your life, enables you to see things from a different and more clear perspective. This is why this is what the Jews were lacking, and why Jesus preferred to refused to show them a sign or a wonder from heaven to prove himself. If they would have had eyes to see, they would have seen. Immediately before this in the story, Jesus had just cast a demon out of a person, yet they refused to see the miracle in all this. 
In John 9, Jesus talks about spiritual blindness. In verse 39, he says, For judgment I have come into the world, so that the blind will see, and that those who see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard this and asked, What, are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. The Pharisees claimed that they could see and believed that they had total and sufficient knowledge. What Jesus is saying here is that they are ignorantly believing this. They are spiritually blind, pretending to see. However, if they came to him in humility instead, they would be able to access vision properly and clearly. And if we are to be fair, a number of Pharisees did. Joseph of Arimathea, for one. As in Joseph of Arimathea came to Jesus and was actually humble and curious and became a follower of his. When we have eyes to see, we are able to observe spiritual things and we are able to put them in their proper context. We are able to see what God is doing. We are able to see the big picture and we don't require God to prove himself to us. We are grounded and rooted, made secure in him, and we are far less likely to be rattled or triggered by things when they don't go well because of the security found in your relationship with Christ and the perspective that he gives. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis again, because by the light of Christ, we are able to see everything else so much more clearly. It's tragic that In today's day and age, there are so many people living in darkness. How is this possible? Is it that the light of Jesus has been stunted? Is it that Jesus hides his light or that it isn't shining or available for all people? No, Jesus is love, and the light that he shines is so readily available for all people. His light is shining all around us, and if we can open our eyes and not be willingly blind like many of the Pharisees, we can notice and enjoy the light of Christ. Finally, we come to the part where Jesus is having dinner with the Pharisees. So in verse 37, when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside, you be generous to the poor. Now, As for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give a tenth of your mint and rue and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogue and respectful greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. One of the experts of the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you, experts of the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, 
and you yourself do not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of whom they will kill, and the others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that had been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. We see here that Jesus has accepted table fellowship with the Pharisees. He then proceeds to immediately offend his host. (laughs) Jesus knew the disposition of their hearts, that they paid far too much attention to rituals and formalities. In fact, that had become their religion and that of highest importance. It was allowing their religion to degenerate into formalism. It is for this reason that Jesus does not ceremonially wash his hands before the meal. Now, at this point, you may be wondering who was requiring this cleansing. Was it a requirement of God or was it one of the statutes of men? We, of course, know that Jesus obeyed the letter of the law perfectly. And so there's no way that it could have been one of the laws or ordinances prescribed by God. Of course, this was a rule enforced by the tradition of the scribes. Even the word here used to describe washing is meant in a ceremonial sense rather than for the sake of cleanliness. The religious leaders were focusing so heavily on the outside and not looking at the inside. What the religious officials were doing was prioritizing upholding Mosaic law, so much so that the Pharisees and scribes lost heart for the religion that they had invested their lives into. They were zealous about God's law, but not for God himself. Rather, they had become rigid for the purpose of making themselves look good and impressive. What I'm struck by in all this is Jesus' heart. Jesus is not content with an outward demonstration of religion, tradition, or formalism. Jesus wants much more than that. He wants his light to shine into the heart of someone. He doesn't want the priority to be about ceremony and appearance. Exchange those for love, sharing with others, and caring for the poor. The Pharisees' religion had become an outward ceremony in a show. God's heart is for his love to cause an inner change, causing genuine love for others. When our hearts are in the right place, this becomes easy because love does no wrong to its brother. We uphold the law by love. This is not out of obligation. It's not out of duty. It is out of an overflow of gratitude for what God has done within us. Jesus then refers to the religious leaders as being like unmarked graves. Here Jesus is alluding to Numbers 19, where it says that anyone who walks over a grave becomes ceremonially unclean for seven days. 
And what they did to prevent accidents here was that they clearly marked the graves by whitewashing them. Then everyone would know that it was a grave and they wouldn't become unintentionally unclean. So when Jesus refers to the religious leaders as being like unmarked graves, what he's saying is that they are defiling people. They're polluting people and they are causing people to sin. (laughs) Then one of the religious leaders decides to defend the Pharisees and make this voice known. Big mistake. Jesus then turns his attention to him and his woes on them. And he said that they load people down with burdens that no one has been able to carry, and they don't even help them out. There were 603 religious laws given by God, as well as the Ten Commandments, totaling 613. Now, if you ask me, I would say that's probably enough. However, the religious leaders didn't seem to think so. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. They decided to make more. They made a fence around the fence, remember? And it totaled some 2,500 commandments that the Jews were expected to keep. This had gone from the realm of difficult into impossible. The religious leaders had found shortcuts and cheat codes to get around some of the laws, yet they burdened people down with all of these man-made laws and did nothing to ease the burden. Next, Jesus talks about how they killed the prophets of old. These prophets were men that came with an unpopular message of repentance, judgment, and love. Their message was not received well by the kings nor religious leaders of the time. And this may have been best illustrated for us a couple weeks ago by Brent when he was talking about Baruch and Jeremiah and all the struggles that they went through. Some of these men were later recognized as they properly were to be prophets. And presently, when the story is happening, monuments were being constructed in their honor by the descendants of the people that had had them killed. This is the absolute height of hypocrisy, made only worse knowing that the fulfillment of Jewish law stood before the descendants of those people. And they, too, failed to recognize one sent by God. And indeed, they did their best to have him put to death. Jesus was literally right in front of them, saying that they were failing to recognize a proper prophet, and they wouldn't see. They failed to recognize the truth and the light. Lastly, Jesus accuses them of taking away the key of knowledge. This key begins with an incomplete exegesis or understanding of Scripture, but it goes so much deeper than that. As I've just alluded to, they remained blind to the fact that all of the Old Testament prophecies spoke of a coming Redeemer who would be the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus fulfills these prophecies. The Jewish leaders should have been leading the charge to come to Jesus and exalt him as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. If only they wouldn't have been so blind, they could have pointed many thousands of Jews to Jesus. And whether it was because of unbelief or intentional blindness, they ignored the key to knowledge. Knowledge of life, knowledge of forgiveness, knowledge of salvation. And what's the point of all this? The Pharisees modeled what religion looks like absent the heart. I'll say that again. The Pharisees modeled what religion looks like absent from the heart. They showed us what religion can look like when you believe that you know everything and that there's nothing known 
that nothing less that needs to be known, nothing left that needs to be alone. And when you focus on rules more than people, what Jesus values is humility, openness, and love. Jonah came with an agenda, an agenda that he intended to fill at all costs. He was even willing to die for his agenda. Whereas the Queen of the South represents humility, and the men of Nineveh represent reconciliation. I've used the word religion here several times, and to many people, religion has become uh, a bad word. But if you look at what religion actually means, reconnection. We're talking about connection to God in all this. Religion is all about the heart. It's all about love. Now, I can tell you all manner of things about my wife, but the point of doing this isn't so that I could win a trivia contest about her. I could tell you a lot about my earthly father. I could tell you about what he values, what he enjoys. I could tell you about his past, his preferences. I could, I could do all these. But the point of this isn't just information. The root of all this is love. I love my wife. I love my dad. The point of me knowing and understanding them better is so that I can love them more fully and in a way proper to them. Information is valuable, but information and understanding about God is intended to improve our relationship with him. It's not just about rules, although rules can be important. The Pharisees missed it because they focused so much on the rules, regulations, and ceremonies of the religion and ignored the loving God and loving others aspect, the two things that Jesus had deemed most important. Let's pray.